This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to UC Santa Barbara's Innovator Story Series. I'm John Greathouse. You can follow me on Twitter, at John Greathouse. We have Anna Frazier with us tonight. She's the Chief People Officer at Sonos. Sonos has offices all over the world. If you're, they're hiring aggressively, so if you're interested in learning more about Sonos, just hang around after our interview, and you'll have a chance to learn a bit more about the company. Anna has served as Sonos's Chief People Officer since January 2017. In that role, she leads the company's recruitment, development, engagement, and retention strategies, in addition to cultivating Sonos's culture around 15 offices globally. So there's, there's probably an office near you. Before joining Sonos, Anna served as the Director and Chief of Staff for Google's People Operations, and she did this for nearly a decade. In this role, she was responsible for people strategy, employment ex- and employee, employee experience, excuse me, for over 70,000 global employees. Her employee and branding and communications programs resulted in Google being recognized eight times, she was there nine and a half years, eight times uh, by Fortune as the number one company to work for. Talk about a track record. Anna drove industry-leading compensation, retention, and engagement strategies at Google. She was also responsible for diversity and inclusion initiatives, as well as a scientific approach to hiring, management, and well-being. Most notably, she worked, on, she worked to open source Google's approach to people practices through the development of the New York Times bestseller, Work Rules. She was also involved in the most read Harvard Business School case, which is entitled Google's Project Oxygen, Do Managers Matter? Anna holds a Bachelor's of Arts in Sociology from a little-known school in Boston, Harvard, and she also was an all-American um, academic swimmer while during her tenure at Harvard. That's hard to pull off. Let's welcome Anna to our class. Great to see you. I'm definitely a swimmer, and this is what happens when I try to do land sports. So, <laughs> She's playing hurt. She showed up anyway. Well, thank you so much. I know you're traveling, yeah. you're busy, things are happening um, at Sonos for sure. Um, I have 200 questions. We're going to be here for four <laughs> hours, so get comfortable. No, I know I'm not going to get through all my questions, but there's some, it's such a rich topic and yeah. so many things I wanted to talk to you about. Let's start with, um, the, let's start kind of at the beginning. So you come from an accomplished sports family. I'm blessed to know your brother and I know your sister somewhat as well. They're both very entrepreneurial, both very driven. So talk to us a little bit about what life was like for Anna growing up and how that competitive uh, athletic spirit has impacted you throughout your career. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm the youngest of four, so I got dragged around with what the older three were doing all the time, which was uh, swimming, so just uh, grew up around the pools, but um, we were all collegiate swimmers and uh, just, you know, doing a sport or any any type of hobby for, um, you know, as long as I did, uh, 17 years, it was, um, for me, just the greatest uh, course in discipline in problem solving um, and of course in teamwork and just you know to this day my my college teammates are my best friends in the world and just treasure all the lessons that I learned through swimming and apply them in my my life and work every single day. Yeah I I feel that way too I played um, baseball or whatever but it was a team sport and I really felt like I carried that camaraderie and that and I value that camaraderie at my startups when Mm -hmm. I was an operator I really felt like we're all in this together and everybody's got to work their hardest and and really pull together. Totally. So I do think that those things from childhood that maybe when you're 20, 22, you don't, you're not far enough away from them to realize how they're impacting you, but they, they will. Yeah, I mean, problem solving is something we talk about in the business world all the time, and um, you know, particularly in startup culture. And um, I actually, I feel like I learned that lesson early on from swimming. I had a, at that time, what I thought was a career ending injury my sophomore year. Mm of college and after surgery, you know, my doctor said, well, you know, you probably should not go back. And I said, well, what if I do go back? What can I do? And he said, well, you can't use your shoulder for the next three months, which is kind of hard when you're not swimming. So um, I was out running every single day. I was um, rowing on the erg. I was uh, doing whatever I could while I, while I rehabbed my shoulder. And I think it just really, um, you know, proved to me early on that like, there's always a way, and just sometimes you have to get a little creative, but, uh, but stick with it. Well, but then tell everyone what happened when you did come back. 
Yeah, so I, that was the beginning of my sophomore year of college. And then, um, I mean, I think probably because I was building up different muscle groups and focusing on different things and in many ways just a lot more determined than I was before I went out. I was able to keep progressing throughout my college time and got, uh, got better every year. So I think I, I think I became a, a different kind of athlete because I had to approach it differently. Didn't you get your best time? I did. Don't be yeah. embarrassed to say that. <laughs> no, I think, but what, the reason I wanted to pull that out of you is, I know you're humble, but there's a lesson there. A lot of times it takes a setback, right? So you have a break, breakdown to have a breakthrough. It's hard to keep having breakthroughs in life if nothing ever goes wrong. I mean, you, sometimes you need to be set back on your heels to make yourself say, well, you know what, why did that happen and how can I avoid it uh, in the future? Yeah. So congratulations on that. That was not easy. So let's go back even earlier. So let's say you're in fifth or sixth grade, and if I had talked to uh, Anna Frazier at that period in your life, and I said, hey, what do you want to do when you grow up, mm -hmm. what would you have said? I think probably a doctor. I think uh, just, you know, at that point in time, it's like, oh, I, you know, I'm, I'm smart. I can do this. I, you know, I want to help people. Yeah, I think that's the, that's the yeah. element I assume yes. was that you probably – um, you probably like that that aspect of being a, because you're a people person yes. by definition. Yeah. Right? That's your career. Yeah. So there's probably that element of like I want to help people. Who helps people? Doctors. Yeah. Then I took chemistry. <laughs> Did not end up pre med. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I noticed you're not wearing a stethoscope. Right. Uh, so you get your undergraduate mm -hmm. degree in sociology, as I mentioned, from Harvard. Um, I'm curious because you're not a sociologist right mm -hmm. now and you're, you're, you're um, not working in that field. What drew you to that field initially and then did you think you were going to use that in medicine or what did you intend mm -hmm. to use that for? Yeah, I don't, I don't think I actually had any idea what sociology was when I took my first class in it freshman year. Um, I, I kind of stumbled into it and uh, I, had, I had done some psychology that I really liked and history and just knew I, knew I liked the social sciences. but. Um, I was I was fortunate to just have a couple of great professors, a really you know really compelling um, curriculum that semester, and just kept taking more and more classes in it, and um, realized oh okay I can focus on the study of individuals, the study of organizations, the study of societies, and really understand how do you make change from all these different uh, all these different elements, and so um, you know I think. I had no glimpse into uh, ending up in a career in HR or even what HR was when I was, you know, 18, 20, 22. But in hindsight, it, it has made perfect sense for my career. Yep. And I, and I, 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 I asked that question not randomly or just mm -hmm. chit-chat. Oh, you know, Anna, what about this? I'm asking it with a very specific purpose in mind because a lot of people watching this around the world and a lot of people in this room start to think, oh, that's next job right out of school. It's just paramount. Like, I can't make a mistake. And when you, when you talk to successful, <laughs> humble people, they're willing to say to you, yeah, that first job I didn't really know. When I was an undergrad, I wasn't really sure. That's normal. Being unsure, not knowing for sure is the normal state of being. Um, and just making the best decisions mm -hmm. at, the, at the time that you're making them is all you can do. Absolutely. You can't really do anything beyond that. So let's go back to your, your, your competitive swimming career. Would you do that again? Because we know that Harvard is academically rigorous. Mm -hmm. We know that, that playing a, a sport at that level is not easy. It's a, it's a it's job, right? Mm -hmm. So you had a full-time job. You had this academic career. Would you do that again, or would you advise someone else to take that path? Yeah, I mean, for me, swimming, swimming in college was such a, you know, such a pleasure and such an, um, a rewarding experience all the way through. Um, certainly the, the relationships and the friendships, but... I think because swimming had been such a part of my life for so long, it was just amazing to have that discipline and that foundation through my college career when everything else is a lot of freedom, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of change, and just, you know, swimming was my constant. Mm -hmm. um, it was also, you know, Harvard is quite small in comparison to UCSB, but it, uh, you know, just having that immediate social network, yes. that, that group of people that... Mm -hmm. Um, you know, were my community was an incredible experience to go through college. Because you end up knowing sophomores, juniors, seniors exactly. right at the gate. And yep. most people tend to know people in their class. Yep. Maybe they know one or two other people. Um, yeah, that is a huge advantage. And it's, yeah. they're so tight-knit and there's so much camaraderie and, yeah. and team building and, and, and all the sports, but especially swim, swimming team. Because it's an individual sport, but it's a, it's exactly. a team sport as well. Yep. So you stayed at Harvard for a few years after graduating but you decided to go across the country to a place called Goggle. Um, <laughs> but it already had a fair number of people then, but it was still a much different, much smaller company mm -hmm. than it is today. What, what caused you to make that leap? I mean, that's a pretty bold leap for somebody that's been in a fairly comfortable position mm -hmm. in, at Harvard. I'm sure you had good friends there. What made you make that move? 
Yeah, so I ended up working at Harvard for about four years after I graduated, after I had a, uh, um, a false start on another job that totally didn't work out. I can talk about that afterwards. But um, uh, I loved working in higher ed and getting to see kind of the inner workings of a university from, from the employer side of things and um, what it takes to make all of this possible. I mean, the hundreds and thousands of people that maintain this campus and do your scheduling and um, make sure that all of your needs are met along the way. It's just, it's actually incredible to see the way an operation like that um, runs. But uh, I was in um, the University of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences for, um, for a couple of years and just, you know, very quickly realized I didn't particularly want to go after a PhD and mm -hmm. um, that academia is an interesting place to be with all the, the tenure and the unions and labor rules and things like that. Um, I thought I wanted to go to law school. I was kind of using my time at Harvard to kill, uh, kill time until law school. And then um, uh, someone convinced me to apply to uh, an event marketing job in Google, New York. And then I got called for people operations, which means HR uh, in California. So I'm still not quite sure how that one happened. But uh, yeah, that was the call I took. And then um, had no idea what the job was when the recruiter first called me. If I'm honest, I still didn't know when I moved across the country <laughs> to go do it. So um, what I did know is that, you know, every person I talked to along the way was just so humble, so smart, so conscientious, compelling. And I just, I knew it was going to be a great leap. It kind of felt similar to when I had gone on a recruiting trip to Harvard when I was a, you know, a college senior and, or a high school senior and just, you know, really got so excited about the people and the culture and the opportunity. Right. And that's important for students mm -hmm. or anyone that's looking for a job. Your first inclination is to make a good impression and be mm -hmm. nervous about what your answers are going to be. But you also have to have your eyes and ears open as to the, the people you're talking to, the culture, mm -hmm. their reactions to your questions, because they're giving you a lot of signals yeah. if you're willing to pick up on those signals. And they're, if, you know, if you talk to enough people, you should have a good idea whether or not this is uh, going to be a fit for you or not. Yeah. Um, it's funny because in 05, <laughs> I was doing a deal with Google with mm. your brother, mm. and he was at the company that I was at at the time, and um, they actually had put an offer, a verbal, to buy us. And I remember going up to the campus, and everybody knows Google now. Not everybody knew it then. I mean, it was, it was well known in 05, but mm -hmm. it's not like it was now. I remember I had a meeting in, on the Google campus in a hazmat room. They had designed <laughs> some room. They had so much money, they were doing like wacky stuff. So we literally went into this conference room that was like an emergency hazmat mm. tent. I don't know if that probably wasn't even there when you got there, but no, but that I, was sort of I, the culture. Yeah, it was like it was yeah. sort of like the movies, like with slides and kind of you know the sky's the limit. We should have sold that business to Google, by the way. <laughs> but yes, it would have been quite good for all of us. So what was it like two years later? So you arrived in 07. Yep. Kind of what was the general environment? It was starting to go from this wild, wacky startup to a bit more of a. a mature company but had a long way to go yeah so um they had gone public three years earlier obviously a, a highly successful ipo um i think they had acquired youtube maybe six months or so before mm -hmm. i got there mm -hmm. but um it was it was still under ten thousand people i mean it was growing rapidly and obviously enormously financially successful um the technology had become ubiquitous at that point um, but actually, even when I started talking to them, I think, uh, you know, I obviously have no background in, in engineering or computer science or anything like that. I had no idea what I would do at a company like that. So it was very engineering centric still. And, um, uh, you know, the beauty of AdWords and AdSense and Google's business model is, you know, they got the technology right and they really didn't yeah. need much else. They didn't need that. Um, you know, that sales force that you see in a lot of companies and certainly what they've scaled up uh, now. But um, what, what was so true from the beginning and still true now is they had a maniacal focus on talent and on culture from day one. So um, Google was founded by, you know, Larry Page and Sergey Brin on the Stanford campus. They were PhD computer scientists who dropped out of their PhD program. Um, and they, you know, they started building this little search engine out of... Um, out of someone's garage in Palo Alto, and they didn't want to leave the university field. So they, they brought it with them when they, um, when they had the resources to open the office, meaning um, it was open, it was casual. They were constantly walking around in shorts and right. Birkenstocks and Crocs and T-shirts. Um, you know, they wanted food everywhere. They wanted interesting conversation. They wanted, um, you know, the leading experts in the world to come in and talk about their expertise, um, and they wanted it to be a really open, high freedom environment where people could just do things and learn and sort of the, 
you know, the best and most interesting ideas win. And Almost so, that extension of a university. Yeah. Like the positive aspects of like exactly. flowing ideas in university. Exactly. But, um, you know, it was, uh, it was, you know, very much a, a focus on culture from the beginning that they... Um, they were very intentional about how they scaled um, uh, in some really interesting ways. And, um, you know, what that meant uh, on the HR and the recruiting side of things is that um, it was a very intense focus on, um, you know, academic credentials and um, did a ton of university hiring and just getting people right out of college and um it was interesting. I started at Google when I was 26, I think, and in the 10 years that I was there, I was always the average age of mm. employee. So um, it got a little bit older uh, and a little bit more mature uh, along the way, but it was definitely a young, thriving environment. Mm -hmm. Did you, and um, I don't, I'm playing a name game live yeah. here, so you, <laughs> do you know, did you run into Bing Chen? Uh, he was uh, part knew of his YouTube, name. Yes. The, yeah, yes. I interviewed him. Yep. Great guy. Yep. Wants to be the modern day Walt Disney. <laughs> I think he might end up getting there. I'm going to ask a couple um, questions about the book, but before sure. I do, let's let's take a couple students' questions. Yeah. Um, reading your profile, and like um, it was a comparability, and a few others, you're pretty much entrusted with like um, uh, employee uh, employee happiness. How do you? What do you think is the most substantial contribution to that? Good question. Um, you know, one of the things that's interesting about employee happiness, employee experience, however you define it, is it's going to be different for every single person. Um, so, you know, when you have a, a workforce of 1,600 and, and a global one at that, you know, one person right, might really value an, an open office plan. Another person wants, you know, closed and quiet space. One person loves, um, you know, loves the flexibility of being able to schedule meetings around uh, how the day works for them. Another person wants a very consistent time-bound schedule. And so um, we just try to ask. We try to have a lot of communication, a lot of ways to get feedback from our employees around, you know, what's working for them, what they want to see differently, um, and then hold ourselves accountable to making progress. So we run, uh, we run an annual employee engagement survey called Soundcheck. Um, and that uh, a lot of companies do that. It's pretty common now to, you know, just ask for that feedback from employees and don't wait until they leave to do it and, and uh, you know, kind of get the feedback on Glassdoor and other places. But, um, yeah, I think just, just ask. So you don't think one size fits all? Come on, everybody wants an open environment. <laughs> Remember that whole yeah. phase where, like, every office was a big room and people were like, I can't get my work done. Yeah. No, one size definitely does not fit all, especially when it comes to, um, you know, careers and benefits and compensation. I mean, what, what many of you might want in, you know, your first job out of college and, and your first five or 10 years working might be quite different than what somebody wants who's been in the workforce for, for 20 years and, you know, might want to trade off some benefits and perks for, you know, more flexibility or more right. compensation. So, yep. and, and, and we often get, especially if it's a young, a youthful minded company, we get kind of focused on mm -hmm. that one age demographic. Yep. And then it's harder to bring in. Not different. everyone wants free beer. <laughs> right, right. Um, I'm going to stop the name game, but AdSense, Eva Ho. Yeah. Did you know Eva? I, well, the problem in working in HR is I knew everyone's name, okay. but I didn't necessarily she's, know them. She's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. I interviewed her years ago. She went on, and she's got a venture firm, and she's nice. done a lot of good stuff. So anyway, she was one of the original AdSense Oh, people. great. And then she went to YouTube for a yep. while. So you guys definitely um, hired and acquired great people. So I want to talk a little bit about... Um, the book, so um, Laszlo Bach, but you were very, very instrumental in creating work rules. Mm -hmm. um, and I mentioned it in the introduction, New York Times bestseller. I'm going to quote um, a little bit from it, and then I want to get your reaction. So at one point, the book says that the best predictor of someone of how someone will perform in a job is a work sample test, okay, mm -hmm. end, end quote. So that seems logical to me, but some jobs like a coder or something like that, seems like that would be pretty easy. Hey, mm -hmm. write code for this problem. But how do you apply that to sort of jobs that are less technical or less obvious that a work product would result? Yeah, um, that is uh, one of the reasons why we invest so heavily in our internship program, and so many companies do, is there's no better work sample than having you come spend, um, you know, a couple months with us. And, uh, you know, we get to see how, how you work and what you can do, and you get to see how we work and what we do and um, and if it's a good fit. And so um, uh, that's that's the best uh, funnel on it, obviously, but, um, you know, I think uh, some of the stuff that was closer to home to my direct teams, I led, um, I, I led an internal communications group for a while, and so I would ask people to do writing samples about 
um, hey, you know, we need to write an email about uh, a change the company is going through or restructuring or, um, you know, if we had to lay people off or something like that. Um, just to see how they'd approach it, how they'd think about it, you know, um, what questions did they have, where did they want to seek more information before just, um, you know, giving me uh, a 500-word sample or whatever I was asking for. So um, that always turned out to be a great dialogue. We would interview for administrative assistants um, who would uh, get asked to plan an offsite for a team, tell us what you would do for a group of 200 people to bring them together, build community, um, have fun, make connections, things like that. So um, just anything that shows you know, how you think, uh, your conscientiousness um, and your curiosity, I think is great. And the way you approach a task. Yep. So let's go back to those for a second. So um, if, if we asked those 250 people in this room to, to do one of those tasks, we'd see different behavior. Mm-hmm. Some people would, are sort of like, I used to be ready rabbit. Like, I'll run off and start working on it. Like, ah. but other people, and that's probably not the best profile. Like, I think a more thoughtful approach would be to say, well, Anna, how many people are going to be at this mm-hmm. offsite? What are the goals of the offsite? You know, what is my audience? What, what, you know, how do we measure success of this mm-hmm. offsite? Like, if you come back with those kind of questions, it doesn't even really matter what you end up writing. The person's already thinking, wow, this person is the kind of thoughtful thinker that I'm mm-hmm. looking for for this job, as opposed to, watch how fast I can write this and, in a vacuum, and, and I write really well. So that's, I like that you, you, you take that approach, because just the way somebody actually accomplishes the mm-hmm. task tells you a lot about the kind of um, worker they're going to be. Absolutely. So I mentioned in, in your introduction that you open-sourced Google's people practices, mm-hmm. which has obviously benefited many, many companies and, and lots of people. How did it, like in a concrete sense, how did it manifest itself when you say that you open-sourced the practices? Yeah, so a lot of the, um, the work we did at Google uh, and what, um, what created the book, Work Rules, and then there's a website called um, Rework with Google, um, was all about taking you know, pretty common, well-established practices in organizational behavior and management science and um, seeing how they actually work in an applied setting. Um, so how do they work at Google mm. and other, um, other companies, other businesses that are uh, trying to just put these types of people practices to work? So something like the, um, the Project Oxygen study that we did about you know, do managers matter that became the HBR case study that was something that we were able to you know, scientifically prove, yes, managers matter, and better managers have um, higher performing teams and lower turnover. And uh, you know, the qualities of better managers, the attributes, are things that are very learnable mm. and very coachable. And They're measurable. Exactly, and measurable. And um, it's not just about being a technical genius. So um, you know, because of the strength of you know, Google's brand and the, the resources that we had there and, and the attention that we got for it, we were able to just do some really cool partnerships with um, some of the leading academics in the field, like Adam Grant, um, uh, Barry Schwartz, Amy Edmondson, who does a lot on psychological safety, and um, and really just like make some of these um, some of these really uh, you know not talked about outside of academia concepts pop and come to life and mm-hmm. be part of the mainstream conversation and really advance the field of people analytics and of management science at work. Well, it was the same scientific approach you took to create a search engine. Mm-hmm. You created a living laboratory, essentially, for some of the best ideas out there. And I'm sure not all of them worked, but you were uh, fair and conscientious about evaluating which ones did and which ones didn't. Not every company has that luxury. Yeah. You, know, you guys had the resources. You had we the had, time. You were hiring so many people. Yeah, we, I mean, we were so fortunate to have a team of, um, it was called the Pi Lab at Google, People Innovation. <laughs> mm. um, but, you know, we always enjoyed 314. Um, <laughs> but uh, we, it was just made up of all these brilliant uh, PhDs in psychology, organizational behavior, statistics, and they were able to just do um, our own, uh, our own unique research uh, on our employees, and shockingly, like our employees actually liked it and participated in it, and right. uh, and the founders expected it and supported it. So yeah, no, it's a rare opportunity yes. for everyone. Um, <laughs> it, it's interesting, like the Harvard case, the most read Harvard case. Um, do managers matter? I think someone at a big company would sort of be like, somebody wrote a case on that. But me coming from, you know, in other words, of course they matter. I'm a manager. But me coming from the mm-hmm. startup world. I used to have sort of an opposite opinion, right? And I was very prideful and very um, um, narrow-minded in thinking that I'm a doer, not a manager. And I sort of had that, wore that badge on my shoulder, right? Like, I'm a, man- I'm a doer, I'm not a manager. And that works to a point. Mm-hmm. There are certain maybe 200 people, I don't know what the real number is, 250 people, but it doesn't scale. Like, mm-hmm. You can't have 250 doers and nobody's managing the doers. So there is a level where, man- I mean, not three people, mm-hmm. we can all manage ourselves. <laughs> 
But there's a point where if you don't start subscribing to the notion that yes, managers matter, your company's going to hit a wall. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you guys in the very early days of Google, probably before you got there, they kind of felt some of those growing pains. It's very, yeah, they, uh, very common. when the company was about four or 500 people, um, Larry Page famously fired all the managers. Mm. Um, just, you know, uh, not uncommon in, uh, in engineering. People didn't want to be told what to do. Right. And, too many layers, uh, <laughs> too many layers. Exactly. <laughs> um, that didn't last very long, as you can imagine. But um, so we were sort of overcoming a, a cultural bias of like, nope, managers don't matter. Yeah. And so we set out to prove that they didn't matter. And, and uh, we found quite the opposite. Right, which would, this is what good scientists do. Right? Yeah. You take a thesis or a premise and then decide whether it's right or not. Um, but I was in that camp too, at this, right around that same time. So the, getting back to work rules again, um, the book notes that the second best predictor of performance are general cognitive tests. So when I read that, I thought, okay, interesting. We all understand tests, mm -hmm. testing, IQ scores. But there's a, there tends to be a cultural inherent bias in a lot of those tests. So how did you, how did you try to overcome those biases? Yeah, I think, um, you know, getting to, you know, Google famously in the early days. Has anyone seen the internship? Yes. Yeah. Come on, the you blend, watched it. The blender question. Um, there were a lot of uh, a lot of wacky brain teasers, like how many golf balls can you fit on a 747, or you know how many um, uh, how many subway stations in New York, or what have you. And um, they uh, you know they were meant to test your thinking, test your cognitive ability, but you know they just made people nervous. They made the interviewer feel smart yeah. and didn't really um, wire you know, manhole covers round. Exactly, you know. didn't really predict how anyone would actually do on the job, and so. Um, you know, the, the theory behind them was great of, you know, how do you get someone to, you know, show their thinking in a hypothetical way, but, um, you know, do it in something that is actually relevant to what you need them to think about, not some wacky question like how many golf balls in a 747. Did that, didn't that come out of the consulting world, though, like in the 90s? I think so, yeah. It was, I'm going to try to trick you. Yep. And then what happened is, is I went to a business school where they all recruited, and everyone knew what the questions were. Yep. Like, you know, it's like, okay, they're going to ask you how many, you know, how many gas stations are yep. there in Detroit or whatever. Um, yeah, so it does have its limits. It maybe it worked in isolation when they first started doing it, but then it becomes a bit uh, kind of ridiculous. Um, a little bit more on work rules, and then we'll move on to um, some other questions. Uh, uh, the book goes on to say the best. Um, this is kind of a long quote, so hang with me for a second. The best approach, uh, again, to hiring good people, is to combine behavioral and situational structured interviews with assessments of cognitive ability mm -hmm. and conscientiousness and leadership. End quote. So when I read that, I thought, well, okay, I, on the face of it, I agree with that statement, but how do you measure things like conscientiousness and leadership? Like, mm -hmm. what would you do as, a, as an interviewer or as a hiring manager to measure those aspects? Yeah, I think that's where, um, you know, behavioral and situational questions are, um, are so telling. If you can just get the, get the person to talk about, you know, tell me a time when you demonstrated conscientiousness and what did that mean? And the the language that people use is really telling. You know, do they use things like on time, respectful? You know, do your homework, um, show you care, show up, uh, follow through, and just there's so much you can learn about um, about it in the language itself, as well as the the example that someone will share. Um, uh, in leadership, I love hearing about you know things that are outside of formal leadership. So, yep, it's great to be captain of your team. It's great to be class president, but where are the examples where you go above and beyond when nobody's asking you to? Um, some great ones I've heard in interviews are people telling me about, like, oh, I'm the one who, you know, organizes reunions for my friends every year, and we, you know, I have the Google Doc, and I coordinate when everyone's coming in, and I find the place. Um, you know, I, I organize meals for a neighbor who just, uh, just had a family tragedy, things like that. Because, you know, so much of what happens in the workplace is going to be unscripted. It is not going to be in your job description. It's not going to be in, you know, what your manager is telling you to do every single week. It's about, you know, what you have the initiative to figure out and mm -hmm. sort of go above and beyond and define. And I, I love talking about that because... <laughs> In, in interviews, it's not the surface level answer is not going to get you there. Mm -hmm. So, if we ask ten thousand people, "Are you conscientious?" We get nine thousand nine hundred ninety-eight that would say yes, and two that are said, "What's conscientious?" Right? <laughs> I mean, everybody's going to say they're conscientious, or they're having leadership skills, or whatever. You need to make sure you can give concrete examples mm -hmm. when you're in an interview situation. So, don't make, don't wait for Anna to ask you to give me an example. Be ready to give an example. Say, you know, people have told me I'm conscientious, and, and here's an example, or somebody reminded me of the time I did this. Mm -hmm. You know, you try not to. Sound too you know, over the top with it, but have those examples ready that demonstrate whatever skill you're trying to convey that you have. We'll take another student's question. 
Hi, I was curious, um, in your experience, what do you feel is the most difficult aspect of keeping employees not just happy but motivated um, at a challenging and competitive environment like Google? Or Sonos. <laughs> or Sonos. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there, there are just so many uh, just incredible opportunities out there today, both from you know, a compensation standpoint, benefits and perks, um, and uh, you know, just so many, especially in tech, so many companies that will you know, compete for talent. And it, it's pretty common to move around, um, especially up in uh, areas like Silicon Valley, you know, move around every couple of years and people want to try out lots of different things. So um, I think especially as companies scale, but scale can be, you know, going from 100 to 200 people or 200 to 500. It doesn't have to be, you know, Google level scale. It's keeping that connection to the strategy and mission and leaders as the company gets bigger. It's really easy to do it when you're small, when yep. you know everyone's sitting right next to each other, talking to each other. Yep, this is what we're going after. This is what we're trying to build. This is what we're trying to go out and do. And then as the company gets bigger, naturally that stuff just gets harder to feel that direct connection to. So finding ways that are um, you know, authentic to the organization and the roles that people are doing to bring that experience to life is, um, you know, I think, a, a challenge and a strength for, for the organizations I've been a part of. So it's interesting. It is, it is easier for smaller companies to mm -hmm. control that. But what the dichotomy is, the, the cost of a mistake is so much higher. Yep. You know, 10 people and you hire one person that's not fitting with the culture, mm -hmm. it's can be traumatic. Yeah. Whereas obviously you hire a couple bad people with thousands of people. It's not fun, but it's easier to, to um, you know, to deal with that. Yeah. And that for me, the, the scale was what, um, what ultimately, you know, drew me to Sonos in addition, in addition to loving the products was that, um, you know, it, it, is pretty unique to have a company at about 1500 have the kind of brand recognition right. that we do and um, you know the economics and the strength of the business because um, you know you have a lot of startups doing really cool things that sort of 100 200 people you're not quite sure if they're gonna make it and then you have you know the Facebook's Apple's Google's Amazon's of the world where yep you know the the scale is out there people know the brand but right. you can't necessarily feel the impact of the work as much and so Sonos is sort of a, an incredible opportunity where you have both impact and a much more intimate experience right and the other thing about those smaller companies which I love right I'm an investor in a bunch of them on the boards of them but the other unknowable is they might get acquired exactly. in fact most of them will get acquired yep. so what's the new new code going to look like and mm -hmm. how it's going to be different um, so I would think that at Google and at Sonos one of the keys to to hiring good people is making sure the managers that are hiring mm -hmm. people are better at it I, I think I, I was terrible I'll just be I'll go on record I did a lot of interviews I hired a lot of people I don't think I was very good at it and I think I made all the classic mistakes that you read about um, what did you guys do to try to try to up the game of people that were actually doing the interviewing and, and making the hiring decisions yeah, well, one of the things that um, you know we were fortunate about to be able to to prove internally and bring some science to is that you know their everyone thinks their judgment and their instincts are right, and right. it's only when you can go back over time and show you know no these are the best predictors of performance or this is the way the best way to assess it or provide the best candidate experience that you can actually you know give people the data and inspire some change. Um, so we did a bunch of different things at, at Google, some of which we're starting to apply at Sonos now, but just it really comes down to structure and consistency, which doesn't necessarily um, sound all that sexy from the outset. But um, you know, if you think about it from the candidate point of view, if you're one of five people that we're seeing for a job, don't you want to be asked the same questions as the other four people? You don't right. want it to just be, oh, you happen to know my brother, so you're going to spend right. the whole time talking to me about X, Y, Z. And then the other thing you see in the, uh, in the psychology is that most people use what are called thin slice impressions, meaning the first 10 seconds of an interview determine whether or not the person wants to hire you. And then they will spend the rest of the time, whether it's 30 minutes or two hours, you know, confirming or, or trying right. to disprove their initial impression. So right. it's really hard to overcome those, those cognitive biases and, um, and heuristics that we all have. And so the more you can give people sort of the, the structure and the practice to help overcome them and the questions to ask and, and try to drive that consistency, the better. 
And then I think the other thing that's really important is just making sure that you have diversity across the interview panel. Mm. So, um, you know, if you have a bias toward hiring someone that you have worked with before, make sure that, you know, there's three or four other people in the organization who are going to meet the person, assess on different dimensions, assess right. for the right fit in the organization, and not just say, yep, John's worked with this person. We know she'll be great. Yep. And that can, those shortcuts can work at smaller companies, mm -hmm. but over time, again, trying to scale that. And when you rely mm -hmm. on friends of friends, you don't get the diverse group, yep. work group that, that you want. Um, the other, yeah, I, just I, one more ahead. thing there. The other thing that's really cool is that performance is really context dependent. So there's a great book um, called, I think it's called Chasing Stars, where, um, you know, people studied everything from investment bankers to, um, you know, to NBA players. And it's, you know, not a surprise necessarily, but again, we're able to prove it out in the research that, you know, the best people in one setting are not necessarily going to be the best people in another setting, whether teams change or the company changes or something like that. So, um, you know, that's why it's so important to not just assume, you know, what worked in right. your past organization is right. going to work in the next one. Right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think part of it, too, and you touched upon this, is starting to recognize your own biases. Mm -hmm. Um, I know it's unpopular for anyone to admit they have biases. We all have biases, and it could be somebody's accent. Maybe, maybe a posh British, British accent, you tend to think the person's smarter, mm -hmm. right? Or whatever it is with you. I mean, we're, we're humans, right? We have these kinds of built-in inclinations. Mm -hmm. um, and so just kind of recognizing those it helps you, you know, helps you go, okay, it's a habit aid. I think this person's really smart. Now I have to really listen to what, you know, yeah. what they're saying. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, and then we, I'm going to jump into Sonos, but um, just another kind of generic question for, for a younger person mm -hmm. looking for a job, or really anyone. What sorts of questions should they be asking a company, or what, what kind of signals should they be looking for to, to decide, is this a good fit for themselves? Because mm -hmm. again, we spend so much time trying to impress the business. We should also be thinking about, is this a good place for me? Yeah, and that, that really is the most important part of the job search, because we Sorry to say this when you're still in school, but we spend more time working than we do anything else. <laughs> so, you know, really getting getting something that's going to, you know, inspire you and be a place where you can, you know, express your passion and, and your creativity and contribute to the organization is so important. And that that happiness is ultimately what's going to drive, you know, your engagement and your productivity in the job. If you're miserable going to work every day, yeah. you're not going to do your best. Right. Um, but uh, watch Office Space for that. Um, <laughs> You know, I think uh, in terms of questions, it's doing a job search today versus 20 or 30 years ago or even 10 years ago, like just the ubiquity of information that is out there and the way the, you know, the internet has democratized and made all this stuff transparent is incredible. Like it used to be, you know, you would just network, like who did, you know, who did your family know? Who did your friends know? Where did you go to college? Things like that. And just... You know, the information you can find out now on things like Glassdoor, comparably um, LinkedIn and the, the network connections you can make there, as well as, you know, all the, you know, all the official assets that company will, companies will put out on, you know, blogs and career sites and, um, and social media channels. Like, there's just so much information out there. So, um, well, even on the people's social media. Exactly. Like, once you exactly. realize... Maybe not your first interview, but once yep. you start to move up that chain, I mean, shame on you if you don't know something yeah. interesting about the person you're talking to. Anyone is Googleable, um, <laughs> and uh, no, I mean, just you know, do do your homework and ask ask questions that that really demonstrate that curiosity and that you've thought, you know, you've taken the time to you know learn what the the organization is focused on, or you know, ask what might seem like very basic questions, and uh, sometimes the the answers you'll get from people will surprise you. Ask how. Um, you know, something you've experienced in, in school or outside of school might, might contribute to it, but um, there's so much you can find out there. Yep. And don't be afraid to have, like, don't be in interview mode the whole time. Yeah. Like, you know, get out of that interview mode and try to really figure out what's going on in this conversation. One of my, uh, I don't think he's here today, but one of the guys on my team who's a UCSB alum was, um, I'll never forget, we were having a, a mixer with, uh, with our board members, and he was asking about... Um, uh, this guy, Tom Conrad, who uh, for many years was the chief product officer at Pandora and co-founded that. And um, now he's down at Quibi, but he had, he'd done a whole bunch of different tech startups. And the guy on my team was asking him about, I see you were involved in pets.com, <laughs> which was the, <laughs> right. one of the more famous dot-com uh, busts flame from, out. yeah, flame out. But uh, it was just so impressive that he had like dug that far back into this guy's resume. Right. Like, Tell me about your time at pets.com. What yeah. was that puppet? Yeah. <laughs> They're too young to know the puppet. <laughs>
Yeah, so that's a good example. I mean, if you do, if you're not doing that in this day and age, you're you're demonstrating that you're you know you didn't really go the extra mile. Yeah, it's it's pretty clear quickly. So you talked about um, you know what drew you to Sonos, mm-hmm. um, January 2017. Timing is everything in life. It's a good time for you to join that business. Mm-hmm. They really could use somebody of your caliber. Um, I understand that you also are involved in transitioning the founder CEO to a non-founder CEO. I've had to do that several times in some of the boards mm-hmm. I've been on. Um, and it's tricky, right? It's, it's never quite easy, and, you, and there's no script for it. Yeah. How, did, how did it go at Sonos? Yeah, so I was, you know, I'd say very, on the one hand, very fortunate, but also very purposeful in, in sort of choosing the culture and getting to experience that through my interview process. So started talking to uh, John, who was the founder and the CEO at that time, um, toward the end of the summer, early fall of 2016. And um, and he just, you know, you heard a little bit about the, the airport ride story from Josh, but he was, he was so generous with his time and so very clearly cared about, about culture, about people, and um, just uh, led with a level of transparency that I had never experienced before. And I just, you know, I think my first interview with him, we talked for an hour and a half or two hours, and I was floored that the, you know, the CEO and founder of this company was, was putting that time into me. So... Um, got to know him really well through the process and uh, really got a feel for the culture. And he was, because he was so transparent, he said right from the beginning, you know, I, you know, I'm planning to step down over time and, um, and I have a, a successor identified internally and, you know, we're, we're teeing that up. Um, and so it was this very uh, kind of hypothetical thing at the beginning of my interview process. And then it became a very real thing <laughs> toward the end um, as we started working on timelines a bit more. But, you know, all things considered, I think it was a very smooth transition in terms of, uh, you know, he was able to uh, handpick his successor, had been grooming him for years um, within the company and really feel just the tightest alignment on the things that mattered most to both of them in mm-hmm. terms of the the culture and integrity of the company and and really recognize that you know what what was needed for the leadership of the next 10 years right. 20 years of Sonos at that time was um, you know was a different direction than where he'd gotten to and where he'd gotten it to and where he'd wanted to take it he had previously been a public company CEO and knew um, you yeah. know he didn't uh, he didn't want to lead a public company again in the future and um, sort of knew Sonos was on the precipice of that scale. So, um, you know, for me coming into the job as as a head of HR, um, it was such a, a pleasure to be able to start with a new leader at exactly the same time that that Patrick was transitioning over to the CEO role and and really set the agenda together. I wasn't coming into a place where I was inheriting, right. um, you know, somebody else's vision. We were building it together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, timing is everything. Yeah, wonderful. So you also got to, um, so you came in in January 2017, mm-hmm. summer of 2018, you went public. Mm-hmm. I've been involved in a couple IPOs as an operator. Um, what was your experience? And I, it's, you know, there's good and bad, right? What was your experience in that process? That was your first hands-on IPO. Yeah, I had uh, Google, I, was, I joined about three years after the IPO. So, um, uh, you know, within Sonos, it was, uh, it was just an incredible uh, learning opportunity and ride within the company. And um, you know, there were a few folks on the management team who had, um, some had been part of public companies before, others hadn't, some had led IPOs, others hadn't. And so um, for me, it was, uh, it was a great um, learning experience and very rewarding to go through in terms of all the things we had to figure out around governance and compensation yeah. and what would change about the culture and what wouldn't change about the culture. So that piece was really fun. And, and it was by no means a sure thing. I think that's what um, a lot of people don't understand when you just read about um, you know, IPOs in, uh, in the media. And one, they're not, they're not usually a Google or a Facebook or some right. you know, a crazy success story like that. Um, but two, many of them don't happen for one reason or, or another. You know, companies will go through the process and then bankers will pull out or something will change in the or macro economy. Yeah. yeah, exactly. A lot of them get acquired. So you're sort of, you know, you're working harder than you ever have on this thing that may or may not happen. And like, you can't really talk about it with anyone outside <laughs> the company. Um, within Sonos, we did actually tell the company that we were, you know, starting the process of, um, you know, potentially going public and we were very transparent and bringing employees along. But a lot of companies won't, right. you know, won't tell their employees because it's just so not a sure thing. Distracting. Yeah. And- yep. Um, people start counting their stock exactly. before it hatches. Exactly. And, you know, that's a problem. Um, 
So you guys got through the IPO, mm -hmm. you kind of upgraded a lot of the infrastructure. The good thing about an IPO mm -hmm. is it's painful, but it does require you to really clean house mm -hmm. and really look at everything and make sure that that infrastructure and foundations in place, because once you're public, you can't afford mm -hmm. a misstep. Mm -hmm. uh, so one thing that I was really impressed when I first met you and we were talking about um, your, some of the initiatives at Sotos, um, I'm involved in a uh, diversity and inclusion project that you and I have talked about here in Santa Barbara, mm -hmm. um, and one of your teammates is part of that team. Yeah. One thing that I was really impressed with is was that you at Sonos made the decision that the DNI diversity and inclusion um, executive mm -hmm. would report right to the CEO. And the reason I'm highlighting that is we recently did a survey of our mm -hmm. DNI group. That's you're the only company in town that we surveyed that mm -hmm. did that. Everyone else has DNI inside of. HR. Yeah. What, what was your thought process on elevating that position? Yeah, so with diversity and inclusion and, and frankly anything that you do on the culture um, side in the workplace, there's a fundamental difference between you know whether it comes from the CEO or a product leader or a business leader or does it come from the HR person. And so um, you know within Sonos one of the things that I've valued so much is right from the beginning from my very first interview with Patrick in the fall of 2016 you know, he was telling me about what he was already working on and what it what he wanted me and my team to work on when we came in. And so it was just so clearly a passion and a priority for him mm -hmm. and felt so strongly that, you know, we we did a lot of work early on to sort of um, build the foundation, build the structure and the consistency around our people practices to drive fair and equitable outcomes into our hiring or all of our recruiting practices, you know, promotions and internal searches and pay decisions and then you know as we've been scaling that up within the HR team we've also been looking at okay how can we make sure that we're um, you know reaching and engaging all the diverse communities across Sonos um, in different ways and and um, bringing a different perspective to it and so uh, Elena Cassizer who's our chief diversity and inclusion officer um, is actually uh, she's a member of our legal department in her day job and so she splits her time but she um, she's just brought so much value and uh, different perspective to uh, to the work that my team does, to the work that we do at a company-wide level. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, she's a great advocate and ally for stuff beyond the HR team. So there's more, um, there's more voice, there's more input coming mm -hmm. into the work, and, uh, and she's approaching it from a different lens. Mm -hmm. uh, I, and one of the things that struck me is, when it's in HR, there's nothing wrong with it being mm -hmm. in it. But when it is in HR, it's sort of, it's an HR issue. Yep. When you pull it out of HR, it's a company Maybe. issue. Exactly. It's like it's all of our responsibility here yep. at Sonos to make sure that we're working towards a diverse and inclusive environment. How do you measure success? I think that's always the tricky part with, you know, good intentions are, are out there in a lot of companies, but they don't always do a good job of yeah. pulling it off. And I think part of it is they're having a hard time just defining what success is. Yeah, I think I think success is is probably never something people achieve. Um, it's you know we we look at progress. Are we doing? Are you know, are we doing better than we did yesterday, last month, last year? Um, and are we making fast enough progress? Those are really the the aspects that we look at. Because I think you know. I would love to see us get to success in, you know, in society, but sadly, I think we are we are decades and uh, if not longer away from that still in terms of equal access to, to opportunity and what you see, um, you know, show up in the workforce down the line. But, um, you know, within within Sonos, we've made a lot of progress and a lot of investments in hiring. So, you know, we really try to make sure. Um, that we are seeing uh, diverse slates of candidates that we are out there sourcing from different pools of talent, not just going with who we know, yep. um, and, uh, and that we are seeing people for, um, uh, for all different types of roles in all of our offices. And, um, and you know, we put a goal out there for what we want our hiring to look like and um, really rallied the company around that. And we've seen you know, really measurable progress. That said, um, you know we're not growing by a thousand people every year, so right. it's really hard to, as I say, turn a tanker and shift the, you know, shift the demographics of the company when, right. um, you know, it was about I think 22% male when I came in three years ago, and now we're up to 28, 29%, or sorry, 22% female. Now we're up to 28, 29%. So made really good progress. It is not fast enough for me, for many people in the company, but um, I know we're working on it and I know it's directionally correct. 
And then, um, so that's, you know, that's on the hiring side, which is sort of the, the biggest lever people tend to look at. But then, you know, internally, we also look at all of our people processes around um, performance management, compensation decisions, promotion decisions, um, internal transfers, uh, and just make sure that there's fair and equitable, equitable outcomes through every part of the process. So, you know, are, are we making sure that, um, that the best person is getting the job and that we're not overlooking some, some aspect that might uh, influence the decision? Um, and then the other aspect that we look at is around just engagement in the culture. So we have a really uh, active employee resource group network within the company, I think more than 10 or 12 different employee resource groups now. And, um, and that's really, uh, I think, my favorite part of it, where employees just take ownership of the culture, whether it's, you know, hey, I want to teach my colleagues more about what does it mean to be you know, Latina in society today and what, you know, what unique experiences and perspectives you know, do I bring to the company? Yep. How might I look at things a little bit differently? How might you know, Latina consumers look at our products a little bit differently? I think that's the real opportunity to unlock. Mm -hmm. Yep, I'm familiar with some of the things you guys have done yeah. internally. It's great stuff. I, I think one thing that we're also noticing with our DNI group is um, maybe it's because we're earlier in this process than we want to be. Mm -hmm. I don't know why, but people are they're looking at numbers and so it's it's numbers of underrepresented people mm -hmm. which is okay there's nothing wrong with that but then not looking at what impact are they mm -hmm. making are they what level are they oh none of them are c-suite you know so yeah. it, it's not just a numbers game it's also an impact game yeah then um, people are starting to figure that out yeah. let's take a couple students questions so as you mentioned earlier a common trend in the tech industry is for employees to work in a company for a few years and then move to another company so with that in mind, what are some retention strategies that you have tried to address this problem? Yeah. Um, so this is probably a little bit controversial, but I'm, I'm a big believer in like, people who don't want to be there shouldn't be there. Um, you know, whether that is in school, in sports, or in the workplace, it's so tempting to just want to hold on to yep. the folks you've got because um, it's so hard to find great people and you, you invest so much in hiring them and training them. And um, so it's, it's only human to, you know, not want to see them move on, especially if they take with them, you know, competitive information or um, specific talent or expertise. But um, the reality is if, if somebody is not intrinsically motivated, there's very little you can do, um, you know, from a compensation, a benefits, even a promotion standpoint that's going to keep them there. Um, you know, they will always have other opportunities. They will always, um, you know, you can always get a job somewhere else for more money. Um, even at Google, that was true, and, <laughs> and they, they're arguably the leading payer out there. So if money is the motivation, you can always make more money somewhere else, um, but it's gotta be about, you know, the full culture and the full experience. So. Um, I think really um, understanding that intrinsic motivation and doing what you can to cultivate that and provide the right experience and then celebrating people as they move on to go go to other opportunities. You know, it's there's nothing worse than the, like, don't let the door, you know, hit yep. you on the way out. But, yep. you know, celebrate their accomplishments, celebrate what they're going on to do next and um, and show people that that kind of growth is is OK. It's normal. It's natural. Yeah. That was one lesson I learned early on. Yeah. Because, uh, again, startups are such a foxhole mentality. Yeah. And like, Anna, we were in this together. And, and I saw the behavior of some of my peers when their people would leave. And I'm like, really? That yeah. person gave us six years of their yeah. life. Like, now, now they're out in the cold. So I didn't believe in conditional love. Like, I always, <laughs> I always call that conditional love. Like, when a manager loves you when you work for them and then you don't work for them anymore, they're like, get out of here. Because I don't think it's, it's it, you're, not, yeah. you're not being true to the work and, the, and the, all the hard work and effort they gave you. Yep. Um, so yeah, anyway. and, and careers are long. I mean, you're right. going gonna right. to run into right. your, your colleagues and your former managers again at, right. at many different points in time. So I think leaving on great terms on both sides and, and working that network after you move on is a great way to, um, to grow your career over time. So what, what mistakes mm -hmm. do you see recent graduates or younger people make in that job search? Like mm -hmm. what, what do you see over and over again? Um, well, the one I certainly made in my, my first job out of college was uh, just being desperate and taking, <laughs> <laughs> taking the first uh, offer I got. Um, but, you know, I think really... Uh, right now it's to what we talked about earlier it's people who haven't done their homework who just you know they just show up because yep their their resume looked great and they stood out on paper and they had all these great qualifications but 
they really haven't put in the work to learn about the organization and yep. um, and demonstrate their their curiosity and what they're looking for. Well, one, one thing I've seen in office hours over and over and over year after year is is the sort of frantic mm-hmm. fear that this first job has to be perfect. Yep. And it doesn't. I mean, Anna's first job wasn't perfect. My first job wasn't perfect. I've been fired from jobs. Mm-hmm. I mean, it happens, mm-hmm. right? And again, it doesn't mean I wouldn't have been successful at that company in a different situation or a different time, but that time, that place, I wasn't. Yep. It's okay. Yep. It um, doesn't mean you're not smart. It right. doesn't mean you're not a hard worker. And, and then you won't be successful. Exactly. exactly. So I think that, I mean, that's kind of my message is, Yes, you want to be conscientious. Yes, you want to do your homework. Yes, it is important, but it's not the end of the world Mm -hmm. if you make a misstep. And in fact, your your early misstep, we didn't really talk about it, but it was in sales. Mm -hmm. And you learned a valuable lesson there. I don't want to be in sales. (laughs) And we can, right, that sounds silly, but that's an important thing. Knowing what you don't want to do is just as important as knowing what you want to do. I think it only took me like four to six weeks or so in that job um, to give myself an ulcer at 22 (laughs) years old and realize that... um, I really didn't want to be sweating cold calls oh and uh, and that I could quit. I hadn't, you know, I hadn't quit anything in my life uh, up to that point. I, right. I had swum from the age of four to 21. I had, you know, I had done everything in school and every activity. And so, like, to actually, you know, just opt out of something yeah. um, was new for it's me. It's drilled into yeah. us. Like, don't be a quitter. Yep. Sometimes Persevere. being a quitter Tough is out. a good thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just knowing when to quit. Things that make you sick, generally not great. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's end on, on this question because I'm always, when I get an expert here, I just love to, to hear their thoughts on things that I can't mm-hmm. figure out. Um, so you've been in the talent acquisition game well over a decade, some of the um, most sophisticated hiring companies in the world. What is your view of work over the next decade? Like, How is work going to change mm-hmm. in the coming 10, 12, 15 years? Yeah. So I um, had an opportunity to talk a couple months ago with um, one of the just most brilliant academics in this field. His name's uh, Barry Schwartz, and he's a, he was a management professor at Swarthmore for many years. Um, he's done some amazing TED Talks, if you Google him. But he, um, he said it best, so I'm going to steal his line of just, you know, as you look at, you know, the Industrial Revolution and the history of work over um, decades and hundreds of years, the first industrial revolution was about automating work with our hands, so automating manual labor. You know, Ford perfected the assembly line and all the things that um, uh, that sort of you know came to play in the first half of the 20th century. Now, I think with you know with artificial intelligence, with machine learning, big data, everything that um, you know that computing has enabled, we're automating a lot of stuff that's traditionally been done with our minds. And so all the things that require, you know, the cognitive thinking that we we talked a lot about at the beginning. Um, But the piece that I just, I don't know, I struggle to see how we would ever automate it, but maybe someone's going to figure it out eventually, um, is bringing, you know, empathy and compassion. So really the the human aspects Mm. of... um, uh, of what we do and how we work with one another. And I think those are so much more important now. Um, you know, so many companies are global and dealing with cross-cultural issues. And so um, I think the more you can develop uh, the soft skills, um, you know, so take a, you know, take a humanities course, take a psychology course if you haven't really understand, you know, what does it mean to bring um, compassion and empathy and, and really understand different um, different perspectives. I think that just goes such a long way as you think about, you know, how do all these different types of people work with each other um, within a company or across an industry? Mm-hmm. Makes total sense to me. I think, you know, everything's sort of like a pendulum. Yeah. And if you look at the, maybe the 1950s or 60s, it was all about how can we more automate humans? And they, people studied it, right? They yeah. time people and they had all these st- And we were trying to turn people into robots. And then with AI, I think you're going to see the same sort of thing as everything's about data. We don't need the people. And, of course, it's going to come back to the Mm -hmm. center. And we're going to realize, oh, we really kind of do still need people. But we can use AI and we can Mm -hmm. use robotics. And we can all, you know, it's all going to be in a stew together. Totally. And I'm glad I don't have to figure it out. I'm glad (laughs) the people in this room and beyond will figure it out for us. Thank you so much, Anna. I really appreciate it. Thank you. great. So it starts 18 years ago with four guys who spent a lot of time in a Mexican restaurant over on El Paseo talking about how to create a better listening experience in their home. Um, Simple as that. And just to give you a sense of how innovative an idea that was and how innovative a company Sonos has become over those 18 years, that Mexican dinner, those restaurant visits, all that time was 
before Pandora or any other streaming service, before the iPhone. And so the idea of a connected home was not really in the mainstream. That level of innovation has absolutely carried through to today, where we're now a publicly traded uh, global company of 1,500 employees operating in 12 countries, um, but have not certainly forgot about our roots and the idea that we were founded here um, and have many UCSB grads working with us, some of whom are here today. So as John said, please stick around afterwards. We're happy to answer questions. We have job openings, we have internships, and we hire uh, across the globe about 400 people a year. So um, I was glad to see the show of hands uh, in terms of the number of people that know who Sonos is. Many people just think we make cool speakers, which we do. Um, but we've really evolved into the world's leading sound experience company, which not only means we make cool speakers with brilliant sound, but have an ease of setup that's pretty unparalleled, the premium design and access to over 100 streaming music services that give customers a pretty unparalleled amount of choice in the kinds of content uh, they want to listen to. So I just want to rewind for a minute and talk um, a bit about who we are as a company and how we care about our people. Because after that... Um, Mexican restaurant dinner uh, turned into a company. Um, there were about 300 people uh, doing about maybe 300 million a year. And then I got a call, which really changed the course of my life forever. I have a wife and two kids. My wife was working. My kids were in school. We were not living here. And the call was for a company called Sonos that I had never heard of. And at the end of a grueling, uh, I will admit, grueling day of interviews... Um, at the end of the day, when I wasn't sure uh, quite how I, would done, how I had done, the CEO came out and said, hey, I'll drive you to the airport, which, you know, for any of you who have had any interview experience, is itself a pretty unusual situation. Um, and in that ride from the offices on De La Guerra all the way to the airport, he just wanted to know how I felt, how I thought it had gone, what questions I had, and did I have a good experience. Um, that kind of attention to how people feel and how the employee experience is, has not only carried through our culture today, but is absolutely transcendent in how we think about the customer as well. Everything that we do is about how the customer feels about the ultimate experience of interacting with Sonos. We are a hardware company. I think you could argue we're really enabled by software, but we sell an experience. And that experience falls down if the customer is not delighted uh, in the end. So. Um, as I mentioned, 1,500 employees. It's a much bigger company than it was 18 years ago. 12 offices globally. Um, we have 25 million, uh, sorry, 25, 25 million products in 9 million homes. Uh, and the two that I want to quickly call out, just to give you a sense of where we are today, uh, how many people own a Sonos product? Okay. Um, how many people own a Sonos Move? Oh, there you go. Excellent. So the Sonos Move is the first durable outside-the-home speaker that we make, battery-powered, weatherproof. And the other thing I want to call out, too, is we've had a very successful integration with IKEA where they've made both a Sonos-enabled uh, speaker through a bookshelf and a lamp that has sold successfully and has continued that experience to IKEA customers around the world in a totally different way. So we're continuing that same employee experience uh, in all parts of the world. Um, just to give you a better sense of what this could be like for you and what it's like in Santa Barbara, Tasha, who will introduce herself in a minute, um, will talk a bit about the experience of coming out of college into a company like Sonos, what that's been like. And again, stick around and we'll answer more specific questions. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I'm Tasha Kano, and I lead the university recruiting team here at Sonos. How many of you guys are looking for an internship this summer? All right. Okay, so this will be helpful to you, everything that I have to say. How many of you are looking for like a full-time job after graduation? Okay, I have a little, I have a few tips for you as well. Um, but thanks for giving me a chance to share a little bit more about what it means to be an intern at Sonos. Um, so first and foremost, the internship at Sonos is a 10 to 12 week project-based internship. So you won't be making copies, you won't be getting anyone else's coffee, but your own. 
What we want to give you is meaningful work that makes an impact on our business. So an example, um, on our marketing teams, you might have the potential to work on like a cross-channel uh, campaign execution and, and development and execution. And if you want to know what that even means, go talk to Molly in the green shirt. <laughs> there she is. She gave me that line on the car right over. Um, for our engineering interns, you could, you'll work on code that ships. So an example of that is uh, we have an alarm on our system, and we have a snooze functionality that wasn't always there. That was written by an intern and shipped, and now we all use it. I use it a lot. Um, we ha are looking for interns um, in a lot of, on a few different teams. We've got our brand team, um, retail marketing, workplace experience, our very own team, the people team. So please go to careers.sonos.com to check that out. Um, I want to let you guys all know that for the internships, we have a deadline of February 28th, so definitely apply before then, but actually don't even wait until then. Apply today, apply tomorrow, um, apply as quickly as possible. Um, but when you're an intern at Sonos, you'll be part of a program that'll help you integrate into the company, integrate into a new city if you happen to relocate for that internship, and also help you build relationships with the other interns that are in your area. So a couple things that we do, for example, is we match you with a mentor. So you'll have a manager and a mentor to help you get up to speed very quickly. We also offer lunch and learns. And these are lunch events um, where you'll meet senior leaders of the business and you'll learn about their area of the business. Um, you'll get to kind of maybe learn about an area you've never heard of before. So for example, we've done ones on um, user research, diversity inclusion, um, finance, um, and we've also done um, one hosted by our CEO where you can learn about like his experience and, and what it means to be CEO of a company, for example. It's also okay just to come for the lunch, which I've done several times. This is true. This is true because they're they are, they are catered. Um, we also try to do community events, so we want to get you out of the office, out in the city, um, especially if you're not exactly sure how to do that. So um, we're still planning what the one looks like for this summer, but to give you an example, we've um, gone to concerts. We've had dining experiences, things like that. So things that will happen outside of the office as well. But I think the really important thing to know is that when you're an intern at Sonos, you're part of the Sonos team. So you also get to participate in all of the other cool things that happen as normal course of business, you know, happens. So for example, we have a global company-wide hack week once a quarter. We actually just ended that hack week today with presentations. You'll be part of that. Um, we have bi-weekly catered lunches. Um, if you're part of a, if we have a product launch over the summer, you'll be able to participate in all of that fun. So um, it's not just about the program, it's about being part of that team. Um, so that's what it's like to be an intern at Sonos. But for those of you who are looking for full-time jobs, I, I want you, well, for those of you looking for internships, just know, too, that this program is growing a lot. Um, so last year, we had 6,000 applicants. We hired 60 interns. This year, we're targeting closer to 80 interns. Um, it's, it's pretty competitive. Um, and we're not just here to say goodbye to you at the end of the, uh, end of the summer. Um, we usually see around 75% conversion. What that means is that 75% of our eligible interns come back for full-time roles. Obviously, if there's a business need and you're interested and you like us as much as we like you, we try to make that happen as much as possible. So um, if you didn't have a chance to have an internship with us last year and you're looking for a full-time job, please go to careers.sonos.com. We have listings of jobs, um, full-time jobs, that are open to, um, uh, you know, kind of junior level talent all the time. So keep checking back regularly. We have some posted now, and I think on our sign, we kind of talk about some of those areas. Um, and if you have any questions, um, please come find one of us. And lastly, I cl I'll close you out with a pro tip. Um, in your application, there's a Why Sonos section. It's a free form section. If you apply, please let us know there that you attended this event and take a minute to really put together a thoughtful answer. We actually read every single one of those. So that's your way to, to try to kind of fast, fast track your application, um, take a look. Um, and if you have any questions, like I said, find me or anyone else with a Sonos t-shirt. Thanks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.